Hello and welcome to BioCentury This Week Special Edition. I'm Simone Fishburn, Editor-in-Chief at BioCentury, and I'm joined today by Mene Pangalos, Executive Vice President, Biopharmaceuticals R&D at AstraZeneca. Mene, thanks for joining today. Um, let's start with AstraZeneca's program for COVID-19. What is the status and what, if any, impact does the announcement from Pfizer have? Yes, yeah, so the program, as you probably know, Simone, we don't have one program, we have many programs. And so maybe it's good to just uh, refresh all the different things that we have going on across the company with COVID right when the pandemic was announced and because of the, the big business that we have in, in China, we've been working on this for a while now. The first thing that we did was really thinking about what are the molecules that we can reposition within the pipeline. So drugs like acalabrutinib in a study called Calavi to try and treat the inflammatory cascades in the more severely ill patients, the cytokine storm. And that's a, B, that's a BTK inhibitor, right? It's a BTK inhibitor, right. It's in a proof of concept study now that would transition to phase three if successful. We also started a study with for SIGA, apagliflozin, which is our SGLT2 inhibitor, which started off as a diabetes drug. As you know, probably this is also now a heart failure drug, and hopefully soon will be a CKD drug as well. But because of the data we have around Fosiga and organ protection, you know, across a variety of organs that are obviously impacted in COVID, we're also doing a study to see if Fosiga can protect against organ damage in severe COVID disease. And then finally, we have as part of the ACCORD study, which is one of the proof of concept basket studies that's being run in the UK, our anti-R33 monoclonal antibody that's currently in studies, again, in a proof of concept studies. So those are the repositioning molecules. We then have our long-acting antibodies, which is a cocktail of two monoclonal antibodies that have had a technology called YTE extension technology, which is something that we've got with the 7 Mab, which is one of our anti-RSV monoclonal antibodies in phase three with Sanofi. And this modification to the FC domain of the antibody enables the antibodies to recycle and, and have a longer half-life in the body. And so we think with relatively low intramuscular doses, we'll be able to protect individuals for between six and 12 months so not just use these antibodies in the treatment setting, um, in the outpatient and inpatient treatment setting, but also use our antibodies because of this long half-life in the prophylactic setting, which will be important where the vaccines don't work, for example, immune-suppressed individuals, but also in the post-exposure prophylaxis setting, let's say you have an outbreak in a meatpacking factory or in a care home, you could go and give the antibody to everybody and you get an immune response literally on day one. You don't have to wait for four weeks or eight weeks or whatever the, the dosing schedule for a vaccine is. Finally, we have our partnership with Oxford University, which is with our adenoviral-based, chimpanzee adeno, non-replicating adenoviral-based vaccine expressing the spike protein. That's currently in phase three across actually a number of studies. So we have a study that's sponsored by Oxford, which is across the UK, Brazil, and South Africa, that's in around uh, 22, 23,000 patients. We're hoping that will read out before the end of the year still. And we have our NIH sponsor, you know, Operation Warp Speed NIH study. Again, it's a global study running in the US, South America, Europe, um, and other countries, which is actively recruiting right now and will read out a little bit later. Thanks, that's a great overview. So let's just focus for a moment on the vaccine. 
you know, Pfizer, and I think we all agree, good news from anybody is Fantastic. good news. Yeah. Um, news. Do you think that that 90% they saw in their efficacy, if everybody's going after the spike protein, does it make sense to be optimistic <laughs> about the yeah. efficacy of other vaccines? Yeah, look, I think, first of all, obviously, huge congratulations and a huge relief that the Pfizer vaccine looks to be working and not just looks to be working, but looks to be working with a really good efficacy readout. As you know, many vaccines to viruses work at 50, 60 percent at best. So seeing a 90 percent efficacy readout reported, I think, bodes um, very well. I think that the efficacy from the Pfizer data, as it's been reported, it sounds phenomenal. 90% is higher than any of us were expecting, which is great. And I think given the immunogenicity that we're seeing in the phase one, two studies between all of the vaccines, the Moderna vaccine, our vaccine, the um, CanSino vaccines, they kind of all look broadly similar. I do think it bodes well that hopefully the other vaccines will also be effective, which is what the world needs, because with you know almost 8 billion people in the world, requiring two dose regimens, that's 16 billion doses. That's a lot of doses we need to immunize the world. Obviously, we're not going to immunize everybody, but even so, you know, Pfizer are going to be providing, I think, about 1.3 billion next year. So I think there's a lot of room and need for a lot more vaccines than the Pfizer vaccine, but I think it bodes very well for all the vaccines and the antibodies, I think is a testament to, I think, the great work our industry has done, actually. And just for our audience to clarify, the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine is an RNA vaccine, in, yes. which is going to require a minus 80 degree sort of environment to live in while it's shipped and so on. Yours is a different modality, the one you have with Oxford, which, yes. um, what are the constraints, if any, there? Can that be shipped at room temperature? So again, I think the RNA-based vaccines, you know, say fantastic data so far. One of the challenges they have is the cost. Manufacturing is relatively more expensive, although the Pfizer vaccine actually is, because it's a self-amplifying RNA, is relatively inexpensive. But as you say, the RNA vaccines do require minus 20 or minus 80 freezing. The adenoviral-based vaccines, so ours, J&J's, some of the other adenovirus-based vaccines are easier in that they only require refrigeration and have generally long shelf lives. I think from a global perspective, again, in terms of in helping the developing world as well as the developed world, I think some of the vaccines will be easier to distribute around the world. But ultimately, as I said, we, we need as many of these vaccines as possible. We've got right now on schedule for next year around 3 billion doses with various organizations and CMOs around the world. So hopefully with that and the Moderna vaccine and the Pfizer vaccine and hopefully some of the other vaccines are in development, that will give the world enough choices and opportunity to be able to immunize you know, sufficiently large numbers of the population. So I want to come in a couple of minutes to discussions around the therapeutics that you outlined at the start. A conversation we've been having at Five Century, is it the end of the beginning? Is it the beginning of the end? You know, how to talk about this without hyping it. I think it's certainly important proof of principle. There's never been a vaccine against the coronavirus before, but at the same time, there seems to be a general feeling there's still a long way to go. One thing I want to ask you is whether, in your view, there is going to be an ongoing need for a sort of armamentarium of drugs. The vaccine data, as you say, is exciting and it's positive and going to need a lot of it. 
do you think there's going to be an ongoing need for therapeutics and how are you and AstraZeneca sort of positioning yourselves with regard to that? Baby steps, I would say, first of all, you know, one, one step at a time. So I think, I think the news is phenomenal, right? I mean, I think it's, it's a really, really good first step in terms of where we are. Is everyone going to respond to a vaccine? No. Is everyone going to take a vaccine? No. You're very familiar, so I know, with, with vaccine hesitancy, and I hope that we will be able to immunise large proportions of the population. I hope these vaccines prove to have long-lasting immunogenicity. We still don't know how long-lasting the protection will be. We don't have long-term safety data yet, which we also need to understand, but I'm hopeful that the protection will last for 12 months or more. I'm hoping that the vaccines will be safe. It looks like they're pretty well tolerated so far. I have no doubt we will still have people that escape protection and will require treatment, whether it's with antibodies, whether it's with antivirals. I also think there's going to be a very large percentage of the population who said that are immune suppressed or actually can't take a vaccine. So if you think just in the UK, there's around 500,000 people who are immune compromised. Now, you would not expect those people to respond to a vaccine, but they are highly vulnerable to SARS-CoV-2 infection and the severe sequelae of, of those infections. So in those individuals, treating with monoclonal antibodies, treating with antivirals is going to be, I think, a better option for them than a vaccination. One question I have has been a lot of focus on, obviously, the vaccines, antibodies, antibody cocktails. Behind that, and we know this from our coronavirus portal, where we're sort of collating molecules in preclinical and clinical development, there's also a lot of small molecules. We hardly hear anything about the small molecules. And some of these are obviously take longer. They may be directed against the virus itself. Some of them may be like some of your therapies. In fact, a couple of the ones you mentioned are in fact small molecules sort of around some of the pathologies related to COVID-19. So I think my question really is, we've heard a lot less about small molecules. Do you think that we will be hearing more in 2021? And is it just part of the fact of life that small molecules take longer to develop or are they really giving way to other modalities in a more significant way? Uh, look, I think they're taking longer, understandably, right now, in terms of treating this initial wave of the pandemic. Will they be useful? Of course, if, if they're efficacious, um, cost effective, they can be useful. I think it's too early yet in the game to be declaring victory. We've had a really major step this week with the first of the vaccine trial readouts. Hopefully we'll have some more really good news from Moderna, from ourselves, from J&J and from others as well. We know the antibodies look like they're effective as well in the at least early treatment setting. We need this virus under control and we need the pandemic under control. And until it is under control, I want as many options as possible on the table so that we've got as many shots at trying to get this under control. And we also don't understand how resistance is going to be acquired. So, you know, even, for example, things like, you know, we're going to need to heterologous boost in a few years' time. Will people need to, you know, go from an mRNA vaccine to an adenovirus-based vaccine and then back again? We, we don't know any of these things yet. Until we do, it's absolutely prudent and sensible for us as an industry to be continuing to work on this area to make sure we absolutely get this virus under control. And, of course, it will teach us a lot for future pandemics as well. I mean, the world and our industry has learned an awful lot over this year in terms of the importance of viral control pandemics, but also test and trace, 
how to work at a time when you can't run your clinical trials as you normally would. We've run R&D programs in ways that we've never run before in terms of speed and parallel processing and investments at risk. So, I mean, we've learned so much this year. And I think this isn't going to be the only pandemic. People talking about this is the century of pandemics. There's a reason why the Asians have been better prepared. The Asian countries have been better prepared than, than the Western countries because they've been through this with avian flu and, and they've had the test and trace systems in place. They've had the testing systems in place and they've done lockdowns and wearing masks before. Whereas for, for, for us in the US and in Europe, this is a very, very foreign and an unfamiliar practice. I think as we go through this and hopefully come out the other end, we will be better prepared if it happens again. But if it does happen again, I hope we'll be better prepared. So you've actually touched on a couple of my remaining questions. And I think you've also pointed to the fact Rather than thinking about these data as sort of it's game over, which I think we all know it isn't, really what I'm hearing from you is that you expect industry to continue to be active in COVID-19 countermeasures, even beyond the approval, let's say, of a vaccine or of an antibody therapy. It's sort of going to be a sustained activity is sort of what I think I'm hearing you say. Until we understand the pandemic versus endemic nature of this virus, I mean, if you look at flu, we have to generate a new flu vaccine every year, depending on the strains that are in circulation. Now, so far, the mutations that have arisen have been ones that we think will not create resistance to vaccines or most of the monoclonal antibodies, but actually we already know that single monoclonal antibodies have generated resistance in the clinic. And I'm sure you've seen the Regeneron paper that showed that in the laboratories, again, with single pressure from monoclonal antibody, the virus can escape through mutation, which is why we in Regeneron have gone with combination antibodies and why others are starting to do that now as well. So there's a lot we still have to learn. And until we, we understand this better, until we understand resistance, until we understand who's going to respond and who's not going to respond to a vaccine, until we understand how long-lasting the protection is, it's far too soon to be declaring game over and victory over this virus. So I want to talk a little bit more broadly about the industry response, which is just, you know, I think we can all acknowledge being phenomenal. We've seen a lot of good things coming out of this. In terms of collaboration, how viable is it for this kind of collaboration to continue? And I suppose the two parts of the question are, can it continue for COVID-19 or will that sort of dissipate? And the flip side of that is, can it actually extend into other areas? Do you expect to see industry collaborating in other ways using the sort of structures that it's put together? Yeah, so look, of course we can collaborate and we collaborate in all sorts of areas with, with partners. Our severe asthma molecule Tezapelumab is a partnership with Amgen, right, that just announced its phase three data yesterday. So we, we do collaborations all the time with both large and small companies and obviously with academia and government. I have to say the way that we've come together as an industry to learn from each other and to put resources together where it makes sense to put them together, I think is great. Do I see that as the norm? No, I don't. There are definitely individuals and groups that are thinking about pandemic preparedness groups and collaborations across pharma. A little bit less interested in that, not because I don't think it's relevant, but because 
We're working with Oxford University in terms of a future pandemic preparedness group and trying to identify novel viruses that we can be ready for even more rapidly than we were with SARS-CoV-2. I think our industry has shown that it can get together when it needs to. I hope at some stage this will go back to business as usual and SARS-CoV-2 will be a virus like RSV and flu that we will have our therapies to. They'll be priced reasonably and then the virus will be managed and under control. We can all get back to a normal way of life. Now, if a new virus comes about and creates another pandemic, I'm sure we will do the same again and move even more rapidly and even more effectively. But um, I don't see it as the norm of, you know, this is how we're going to work in heart fear and this is how we're going to work in diabetes. We, we get together with our peers and collaborators when it makes sense and where there's synergy to do so. So if I look at our genomics consortium, several pharmaceutical companies, several um, academic groups, we're all working together to generate data sets that we can all use, but use competitively. That's for me how I see us, you know, in the normal way of life of working with our peers in R&D. Thanks, Manet. So one last question. I want to turn to the issue of racial disparities in healthcare. It's something that we wrote about in our back to school package. It's something that has obviously been around for a long while and was really brought to the surface in the US and the UK at least. Other countries actually don't gather the data with COVID-19. I want to ask you if you think that this has really opened people's eyes more, whether you think that within the pharmaceutical industry, there may be more attention given to constructing trials that properly incorporate all communities, what you think the future of that looks like? Yes, no, that's a, that's a great question. I think the answer is yes. It's something that we've been talking about. Obviously, inclusion and diversity is something that's very important to us as a company within our employee base in terms of how we recruit and how we treat people within the company and outside of the company. It's also a very important piece to consider in clinical trials. And as we've seen the impact of SARS-CoV-2 on ethnic minorities, it's been clear that the virus also has a potentially disproportionate impact on those. And we need to make sure that in our clinical trials, we represent all of those populations equitably in a way that enables us to, to make sure the vaccine is effective across those populations. We've made sure in our studies that we do that across geographies. It's why we're recruiting in South America, in Africa, as well as doing studies in India, Japan, and, and other regions as well. That is an important norm in our clinical studies to become a norm, that we think about minorities, diversity in all of our clinical studies, whether they be in heart failure or diabetes or asthma or COPD. Now, what I would say is if I look at some of our programs, we have some programs that are chronic kidney disease, for example, is a disease that impacts African-Americans in a greater proportion. And we have some really exciting programs in CKD that are actually targeting those populations specifically, which I'm very excited about, and which I think will be really important for those populations if hopefully those medicines are effective. Thanks, Manny. That's great to know. And we will certainly continue to follow those by Century. I think that's all we have time for today. So thank you very much. Good luck with your trials. And uh, good, good, luck, good luck to everyone. Who's good, good, good luck to all of you. So thanks very much. My pleasure. Thanks very much, Simone. Music for all of our podcasts is provided by Kendall Square Orchestra, which connects science and technology professionals and other members of the greater Boston community to collaborate, innovate, and inspire through music while supporting causes related to healthcare and education. 
All of BioCentury's podcasts can be found via our website, biocentury.com, along with written content and data analyses providing intelligence on the global biopharma industry.